Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is from the Saraband, from the English Suite Number no. 1 in A Major, BWV 806. Bach has a set of six English suites, and also a set of six French suites, and it turns out that he did not name those English or French suites at all, but those monikers were added later. So why is this an English suite? Why are we calling it that? Well, the answer, in my opinion, isn't one of the most interesting things we'll talk about this episode, so I'm going to blow past it a little bit in favor of talking more about the Saraband that we're going to focus on today, especially one chord that I really love, because that's what we're all about here on A Moment of Bach, right? (laughs) Finding moments that we love. But it's worth talking about English and French suites for a little bit here. Typically, even though both of those types of suites are built out of several different movements, each of them based on a dance form, It's just the order of movements and the amount of movements that you put in there that distinguishes English from French. Basically, the English ones tend to be a little longer and sometimes a little more florid. And this first English suite, this first one of Bach's, is the longest. It has 10 movements, a lot of double movements, which means like there will be two courant movements in a row or two double movements in a row or two bourrée movements in a row. And these are all just dance forms of the time, and the music would have sounded kind of like the dance that these people would have known. Now, calling it a dance is a little bit misleading, because this particular music wasn't meant to be danced to anyway. This was concert music, and it was written for the harpsichord. Now, we've talked a little bit about this before, but the harpsichord was one of the premier keyboard instruments of the day. Besides organ, there were a couple others that were less common in a performance setting. But basically, the harpsichord was what this piece was written for. Bach knew all about this instrument. He was not writing for the organ here. He was writing for the harpsichord. And crucially, he was not writing for the modern piano uh, because that didn't exist yet the earliest versions of pianos or pianofortes were being invented right around the end of Bach's life, at least uh, the, the earliest versions of them, but he wouldn't really write for them in his lifetime. Yeah, it seems kind of like a shame, but it was just the period of history that he was in. He knew about pianos as they were being made, but like we said in episode six, the piano that Bach would have heard would have been so different than the modern one that we hear now. Yeah. It's developed a lot since then. Yeah. And listening to harpsichord music, it can can sound almost otherworldly compared to piano. It doesn't sound like it at all, especially in this. In the movement that I've chosen here, it's very different than piano music. Something sticks out right away. 
to me, that is, I mean, several things, but one main thing is how these chords are all rolled. That's something very typical of harp music as well as harpsichord music. Both instruments that pluck strings. Harpists will pluck strings with their fingers, but harpsichordists, they also pluck the strings in a way, right? They just, they press the keyboard, the keyboard looks like a piano, but every time they press a key, the string gets plucked by a mechanism inside the instrument. And that's what makes that characteristic sound. It's good to distinguish this from a piano because everyone can picture what a piano looks like, right? Uh, like a concert grand piano, this big thing, it's long, over six feet long, but there's smaller versions too. But what's inside, you know, are strings. And in a harpsichord, inside are strings as well. So what's the mechanical difference? It's that in a piano, you press the key down and it causes a hammer with a pad on it to strike the string. And with a harpsichord, you press the key down and it causes each, each string has its own plectrum, its own pick that gets caused to move and pluck each string. And you cannot control how loud this happens, unlike a piano. Right. right, and so if you're playing the piano, you have a lot of options for tone control, basically. How loud you want to make each note, how long you want to sustain each note. You can use the sustain pedal on the piano to do this. Harpsichords don't have that either. So harpsichord, kind of like organ in a way, has fewer options for making something sound expressive because you can't change the volume really, at least not very much. I mean, some harpsichords have two manuals or like two full keyboards and one of them will sound a little louder than the other because there's basically two sets of harpsichords inside the instrument in that case. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a really simple version of how sometimes organs have several different you know, instruments hidden away inside them that you can activate like we've talked about before. But either way, you can't change the volume on this thing. So how are you gonna make it soft or loud? How are you going to make things interesting? Well, you can see here how that's done because our harpsichordist here does a fantastic job of showing how to make the instrument sound interesting even though it's just so simple in its tone quality. So what you just heard there was a rolled chord. Here's how that chord would sound if it was not rolled. And now here's how it sounds rolled. It's not only a matter of separating all the notes out, but then it accentuates the top note because it's the last one you hear. It brings it out a little more, and then that lets you get ready to hear the melody coming off of that top note in the first measure. All these little decisions that are being made by the harpsichordist here are helping out the clarity of the line here, which can be lost a little bit if you're not playing it well. And our harpsichordist here, named Elina Zilberak, she does a great job of distinguishing these lines. What are some other ways a harpsichordist will make sure that things could stay interesting? Well by not keeping to a specific tempo, especially on a slow movement like the saraband that we're gonna look at in a second, it's kind of nice to be able to give yourself a little bit of play here. In music, this is called rubato, and it basically just means 
uncontrolled time and rubato like robbed time basically like time stolen from one area of the music and then given back to another so that things slow down but then they speed up at musically satisfying places so even though there's 10 movements of this english suite it really goes by pretty quick and that's because all of these movements have a pretty similar form to them with the exception of the very first one, the prelude, all of these movements are in a binary form, which is just A and then B, and that's it. You have A, which is the main theme, basically, and then B, which is kind of a secondary part, but usually it still has to do with the main theme. I mean, with Bach, he was always so good at conserving musical material that the whole thing feels like one piece. The B part still feels like part of it. It's just a way of closing off the A part. And then another thing to note is that most of them have repeats on both of these sections. So what you're really hearing is A, A, B, B. Right, so A and B, the terminology we're using here is more of like a music analysis term to describe entire sections. So like the A section is the first section of music, and the B section is the second. We're not talking about the musical notes A and B. Right, although confusingly, this is in A major, so (laughs) that's not what I meant. I meant A, yes, I meant what you're saying. A, section A. The first section of music, right? Right, more of an analysis term to understand old music, but it it does work. And that's why Alex said it was called binary, because it has these two sections and one followed by the other. Binary meaning A and B. So each of these movements, again, except for the prelude, have the A section repeat and then the B section repeat. And what's great about that, and this is not specific to Bach, but really idiomatic of this form of dance music is that we start on the tonic note on the tonic chord and that is a and that feels like home right we've talked about that before we know we're going to end there that's going to be the the last chord of the movement also so it starts with that and then at the end of the a section it ends on a dominant chord which sounds a little unresolved doesn't that sound like that wants to go back to the tonic well like we said the a section is going to repeat So since it ended on that, it's going to jump back to the beginning of the piece again, and sure enough, you get your tonic again. And it's a mirror of that in the B section. So at the B section, we start with the dominant, meaning that we don't feel like we're done with the piece yet. Then the B section is generally longer also, so it feels stretched out, but then it does end on a nice tonic. And yet, we're still going to repeat the B section again to give it a little bit more padding, I guess you could say. I mean, it's it still feels like it needs that repeat because you repeated the A section, so it feels musically complete. But you really could play these without repeating the B section. It'd probably be okay for some of them. And sometimes composers would indicate that, and sometimes performers will make that call. But typically with this, you'll see, uh, you'll see performers... Do- doing all the repeats, basically, doing it the way that Bach intended it. One fun thing to do here is when you're listening to these movements, just see if you can figure out where it repeats. The best way to do that is to sort of wait for a pause. Typically, at the end of the phrase, there'll be a little pause, and then you'll hear something familiar, and it's like, oh yeah, I guess we just went back to the A section again. And then you'll hear that pause again, and you'll know we're about to go into something new, the B section. 
So many of these movements have this lovely lilting quality or this like sort of quick racing quality. And the one that I love here the most is the Saraband, and that's really the slow one, basically. It's in a slow three-quarter time, and typical of a Saraband, it kind of feels like beat two a lot of the time is stressed here. So you'll hear in these first two measures, you'll hear a nice rolled chord on beat one. Then you'll hear something that sounds like one and two, and two feels kind of stressed. And as we come into the end of this A section here, it'll feel a little unresolved, and then it'll feel like there's a bit of a pause, like I was saying before, and then you'll hear it. You'll hear that pause, and you'll think, hmm, it seems like we're ready to repeat that again, and sure enough, she will repeat and go back to the beginning. And this time, she'll do more ornamentation. So it's not a strict repeat. The second time we'll have more ornamentation, especially of the melody. A lot more little extra notes in there. I love what she does the second time. Yeah, it's so cool. And it's, it's a lot of improvisational skill. Um, but some of it actually might be like perfectly thought out too. It might not be like improvisatory. It might be... It might truly be thought out, but either way, it's kind of, it's cool because it's an individual thing. And she gets to make that call. She gets to sort of compose those little bits over what Bach has done, which is kind of a nice, uh, nice little treat because it's different for each performer. So you get to hear something unique. Yeah. And as a person who has to play keyboard sometimes for a lot of things that kind of are a slog to get through, you know, quite a lot of music on one day or something like that. And if you have a lot of creative control over something that you're accompanying or something like that, Alex, I think you will agree that it's very rewarding to figure out how to ornament and decorate things sometimes musically. Right. And that that's what's happening here. I think that's one of the most joyful parts of performing music for me is figuring out how to bring a tiny personal touch to something that's on the page. And as we've said, the Baroque composers actually expected you to ornament this stuff like you would not have played it straight anyway so they they wanted you to do that we know they did yeah i mean just comparing recordings is is pretty amazing i mean if you look at something like let's say a beethoven symphony which you can do a lot of different interpretive things with a beethoven symphony but looking at two different recordings of a beethoven symphony sound so much those two will sound so much more similar than two separate recordings of this Bach English Suite number one in A major, let's just say. Like, listen to a Saraband that we just heard, listen to it by somebody else other than this Netherlands Bach Society recording, and you'll see the interpretations have so much room for differences for individual interpretational differences. Yeah, and if you're into, if you're into symphonic classical music, you might, be, you might be shouting at us right now going, oh, well, I... I can totally tell the difference between this recording of Beethoven's seventh and this one. <laughs> yeah, and there one. are. And yeah. yes, of course. And they are like very different interpretations of Beethoven. But the fact is, is that they're all playing the same notes though. Right. They're almost never playing a different note in any case. They're doing all kinds of different things, the way they stretch and push and pull different notes, but they're playing the same notes. Whereas something like this with Baroque music, the performer gets to embellish and add little notes here and there. So here we come to my moment. Right as the A section closes here, it's only eight bars, but it's slow, so it took us a while to get here. And then here's this pause again, the second time we get it. And then, 
Now, as we say a lot on A Moment of Bach, when we pick these moments, it's, it's very personal. It's hard to explain why I just really love this moment, but <laughs> I will still try. And here is why. This is what is called a dominant chord, like we've said before. It doesn't sound resolved, but Bach does something even more unresolved, or even less resolved, you could say, by putting that bass note a step lower. So here's what that would sound like if the bass note was sort of where it, you'd think it would belong. And here's how Bach does it. This is not an unusual chord in a Baroque context at all, really. But it's always one I love, and the placement of it here just really charms me for some reason. Now listen to that bass note, and you'll know, you'll feel, at least after you hear it a couple times, you'll feel why it has to resolve downward, right? In the next measure, you'll hear that note go down. That note needs to resolve here. Now listen again and direct your attention only to the bass note and hear how it just resolves down by just a half step. If that note would have stayed where I said it was before, it wouldn't have had to move that way. Yeah, it gave it an extra bit of tension to sort of purposefully destabilize that chord just a little bit by making that bass note more interesting. Yeah, and um, without getting into like super technical music theory stuff, it resolves to a type of tonic chord, but that does not sound resolved, and that's because there's a different accidental happening in another part of the chord. And what ends up happening is that Bach uses this whole section here to sort of string out these dissonances. And each new measure never really quite feels like it's done yet until we get to the very end, right? Then when we finally get to the end, we get a pause. We get a little bit of a of a breath there. And it really, it takes us a long time to get there because this movement in particular is special. Amongst all the other movements of this suite, this movement, the B section is three times as long as the A section. Hmm. None of the other movements are like that. All the other ones, the B section is the same length as the A section or twice as long, which is which is typical. It's very typical. But for the B section to be this long, it's clearly Bach was doing something here. He knew he was he knew he was able to sort of string you along emotionally here and make it make it interesting. And what ha- happens later in the B section are these these kind of thrilling runs in the left hand. You'll hear some lower notes do some lovely thrilling runs here. Then we finally rest at the end of this section after this final statement of the melody up here. Those top notes just kind of slowly falling. We get to the end. But pause, hold on. That's not the end, because as we said, we always repeat that B section, right? So you get another very satisfying go-through of the B section of this movement. You hear how she rolled that chord again there? One thing I also love is that this melody reminds me of the very last movement of the St. Matthew Passion.
it's basically the same thing. I mean, it's in a minor key in the St. Matthew Passion, but there's a section of it that is in a major key in that movement of the St. Matthew Passion. And it's just a nice little example of Bach borrowing from himself. And it's just, it's a nice little reminder of that gorgeous, beautiful, lush um, choral and instrumental thing with two orchestras and two choirs. And then compared to this, which is a lovely little personal harpsichord solo. This is abstract music, right? This music is not really about anything. There are no singers telling us that this is this is not a cantata, so there are no singers telling us uh, that this is about a biblical story, and this is not a programmatic piece, so it's not like about something like, say, the 1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky. Um, it's not about some, some battle or something like that. This is abstract music. But in some ways, that's kind of the most beautiful thing that it can be. Leonard Bernstein, the great composer and conductor, uh, liked to talk about abstract music, and he thought it was kind of doing a disservice for composers to try and tell the audience, like, this is what this music is about. It is about this story of this person and their journey or whatever. And I, I don't think that I have a problem with music that is programmatic, which means that it follows a program that it's about something specific. But in a way, this kind of music, this English suite and so many others like it, so many other pieces by classical composers that are just called like something something sonata in C major or whatever, the titles might be boring and they're just descriptive about the music, but it really allows you as a listener to project whatever it is that's on your soul right into the music with no barrier. You don't have to be identifying with the main character of the story or anything like that. You are that person. You are the listener. It's all about the way you react to it. I think there's some kind of beauty to that. We talked a little bit with Eric about this, right? How music has a subjective meaning for each individual person. And it means it can mean something a little different for each person. And that's what makes Bach's instrumental music very powerful for people. Because it doesn't have... It's not really preaching words at you or anything like that, even though we think the cantatas are beautiful. This kind of stuff can speak directly to your soul in a very personal way, especially this solo keyboard stuff. just seems a little bit more down to earth. Yeah, and very personal. It's one person playing it, especially the harpsichord, which sounds a little bit more vulnerable than the organ, and it just feels very homey. I mean, another thing that's great is this Netherlands Box Society production, like they all are. They're fantastic looking. This one is framed in a beautiful house with a beautiful instrument. Um, it's just a lovely little concert that you feel like you're a part of on a beautiful day. It's great. And it, it's very it's very calming for the soul, not just to like hear. You know, classical music is calming in a way if you listen to it to, uh, to relax. Sure, I can't do that. <laughs> I just find myself listening to it a lot more intently whenever I do that. But if you like to hear this music to relax, then it definitely works because it sort of just like hits you in that place. Right. Like there was one day when we were in Ireland where I saw a wonderful like Evensong church choir and that has its own particular austerity and beauty that was absolutely gorgeous. But then just like walking back, hearing just some band on the street or something or some guitarist 
and that's a completely different type of emotionality to the music. It's really good to show the power of music manifested in all those different ways. Now, here's Alex's favorite moment from the Saraband. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of English Suite Number 1. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Okay, Christian, what's up for next week on A Moment of Bach? Next week, we're talking about Bach cello suites with our second guest. Yeah. We've got Alex Santamaria coming down uh, from Los Angeles, which is where he's from. And I know him primarily as a violist, um, but he also plays violin. So he plays viola and violin. And stay tuned to figure out why we have a violist coming for a cello suites episode. But it <laughs> yeah. totally, it totally tracks because... It's um, music that violists play all the time. So we're going to talk about that, what it's like to, uh, to play that stuff on the viola, uh, as well as all kinds of other stuff with Alec. It'll be a really good time, and he'll bring the viola and play some stuff for us live. Should be fun. Until next time, enjoy those moments.